I'm Maya Garantz. And I'm Rebecca Cohen. And this is The Sauce, the culture and politics podcast where we drink cocktails and ruin the stuff you love. In this week's episode, we are going to be talking about a topic that's been on our minds because of the news, terrorism. Yes, the uplifting and charming topic (laughs) of terrorism. We're also going to think about it because it emerged actually from last week's conversation about incels. So in some ways, it's a little bit of a continuation of last week's show. Before we do that, we've got some updates from the news and some listener feedback. So we should get started. You ready to get started? Yes, I am. Now let's go. So, how are you doing? What are you drinking? I am doing just fine. It is getting super hot in New York, and I am ever so mildly starting to regret. I won't say regret, but have that feeling of like, oh, yeah, this is what sucks about New York. (laughs) But you know what? It's like barely started. So I shouldn't start complaining yet. I have so much more complaining to do. I just need to like (laughs) save it. I'm drinking a Godfather. Did we talk about the amaretto? We yeah about the process of finishing the amaretto. But I have you actually gotten more amaretto yeah, because of what you, you learned? <laughs> Did I not tell you I went out and bought a bottle of amaretto? Oh my god! Yeah. So for listeners who may not have listened to some of our previous episodes, uh, before I moving to New York, I had a bottle of amaretto in the house of mysterious origin and had to finish it even though I don't really drink a lot or didn't at the time drink a lot of amaretto and had to uh, look up some different cocktails and figure out what to do with it. And I actually found cocktails I liked so much that I recently went and bought a new bottle of amaretto. amaretto. Wow. (laughs) So I'm having a godfather, which is scotch and amaretto. And you know what? I really like it. That sounds I want to try that. You should. What are you drinking? I am drinking a dark and stormy um, Mm. because I was like, what am I going to drink? And then I realized when I had my very drunken night with my lady friends a few weeks ago, I bought this beautiful bottle of ginger beer and we never opened it. So I'm like, I'm going to open it. Damn it. Ginger beer. Nice. Mm -hmm. That's great. Dark and stormy is a lovely drink. And how are you doing generally, Maya? You know, I have green hair right now. It's really exciting. Yes, I can see this. Our listeners we- <laughs> can't. It's this beautiful, light green shade. Very mermaidy. Yes. Um, because when we were growing up in the 90s in San Diego, um, <laughs> I had such dark Jewess hair that I was never able to like play with manic panic or do any of that stuff because it was never going to show up. Yeah, yeah. You have so to now, go through a whole process, right? You have to bleaching like bleach process. it. Yeah. Exactly. So now I'm like old and I have a little money. So I was able to go and get it properly done. That's wonderful. It looks great. It looks great. Thank you. One time, probably in college, I had my hair professionally colored and the woman who was doing it, she couldn't stop sighing and mentioning how much product my hair needed. Yeah. So it, it sort of turned me off from putting people through that, apparently. I would need a lot of jars of manic panic to pull it off. (laughs) I have thick Jew hair. Oh, I have very thin, poor Polish Jew hair (laughs) from the shtetl where we're eating caraway seeds because they were, (laughs) there was no real food. Like that's why we, you know, made food out of whatever wasn't dirt. And that's why your hair is green. Exactly. (laughs) Makes sense. 
All right. Okay, so we have some we have some updates. We've got some feedback from listeners. Um, but let's start with uh, what happened recently in the news that we wanted to talk about. So I wanted to have a quick moment to acknowledge the passing of novelist Philip Roth, who died at 85 this week of congestive heart failure, and whose novel Portnoy's Complaint, which was a wild and scabrous take on being a horny Jew boy mm. with a controlling Jewish mother was one of the defining novels of my life, I must say. It was a really, really important book to me. And then also Wednesday, I went uh, with both my mother and my seven-year-old son to see Paul Simon on his farewell tour. And it occurred to me that we are seeing in some ways the last of the dirty Jew boys. Now, I know there are many dirty Jew boys out there. Some of them might be listening to us right now. Yeah. Hi, dirty Jew boys. Hi. We, we love like you. you. Yeah. We don't love all of you. Some of you we love. Um, <laughs> but there is a way in which what I mean by that, Leonard Cohen died last year. Um, there was this group of artists and comedians and writers who grew up in what might be thought of as the last pre-assimilation community of American Jews, Jews who did not live with Gentiles because they were not allowed to live with Gentiles for right. reasons of class differences, for reasons of actual explicit covenants. <laughs> right. they, they sort of came into adulthood right as Jews were becoming white. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's exactly it. And in so doing, they occupied a really interesting insider, outsider. And actually, Lenny Bruce talks about this in Live at Carnegie Hall, where he says that I've paid maybe about 30% of the Negro dues. He said, <laughs> I grew up in, he said, I grew up in, in segregated housing, segregated college, CCNY, Circumcised Citizens of New York. And he was like, in, you know, I was in the army during World War II, and it's called a Jew boy, and it was really bad. But now, you know, whatever, Jews have made it. And I feel like all of these men occupied that insider-outsider space, and that allowed them to both be successful, but say things that other people didn't say. Yeah. And I feel like uh, some of them were really brilliant at it and did a lot with that uh, position, whether they were aware of what it was or not. And Philip Roth was one of those. R.I.P. Mm. We also have some listener feedback that we wanted to share. Uh, thank you mm -hmm. to everyone who have been listening to our previous episodes and tweeting, emailing, sharing your thoughts. We don't have time to respond to everybody in the episode, but there's a few key ones that we wanted to address, even if we can only talk about them briefly. Um, there was one tweet in regard to not our last episode, but the one before that, where we talked about Trump and his administration as embodying mafia movie tropes. Yes. I just particularly loved uh, Jazzy B at BDWall359, who has a great picture from Godfather 2. Um, uh -huh. And he says, insert Chuck Grassley as Senator Geary, pot meat kettle. Nice. And I really enjoyed that. <laughs> That's nice. That made me laugh. The nice, yeah. goyish, uh, who's still playing along. Another tweet in regard to our more recent episode, um, we talked about incels and David Contrarian on Twitter, who's at David Contrarian, wrote, 
I just had an epiphany during your podcast that Reality Bites is just as subversive and revolutionary to rom-coms as Heather's is to John Hughes high school movies. No, we both read that and kind of went, like, I think we're going to need some time to process that. I'm not sure if I agree with that take, but David Contrarian, if you want to tweet at us more and explain your thinking on that, I would love to hear your logic. Absolutely. Another tweet I just really loved and wanted to share was from Dean Madden on Twitter, at Madden Dean, who wrote... Another great episode this week. Thanks so much for creating this inspiring, informative, and entertaining content. Aw, thank you! It gives us warm fuzzies, and I encourage everyone to similarly (laughs) tweet about how great we are. But also, if you disagree, we're very interested in hearing disagreement and stuff we didn't think of. We really do enjoy hearing from listeners. It makes our day. It makes our day and it often gives us uh, thoughts about what to do next. So we we yes. do love it when you write to us. We definitely do. Um, and actually what's funny is that we had this idea before we got this tweet. I just saw this, but I thought it was a nice transition into our main topic. Pesto Quiche, at Pesto Quiche 80s, uh, wrote about our incel episode Uh, that he sees three major pieces to the incel terrorist phenomenon, a fucked up worldview, number two, a sense of entitlement, and number three, frustration turning to anger, uh, to violence against women. And he said, your episode delves deeply into number one and number two. Would you consider a follow-up episode linking number two, the sense of entitlement, to number three, the frustration turning to violence against women? Well, guess what? We were already planning on it. That's pretty much you covered. Pretty much what this episode's going to be about in a lot of ways. So, all right, we're going to dive in. Gird your loins. <laughs> <laughs> So there was another school shooting in Texas uh, last week. Yes. And it got me thinking about terrorism. So before we get into the ways that we're connecting the school shooting to that, first we want to just briefly touch on what terrorism looks like in the general American cultural imaginary and conversation. I'm really interested in the ways that Americans conceive of terrorism and the way that uh, it's a word that um, doesn't really have a very clear definition. It's one of those like, I know it when I see it things for a lot of people. So how do most Americans view terrorism? Uh, I mean, I feel like a lot of the general understanding about terrorism is very much built up from the conservative cultural imaginary. It was like, yeah. what was what was the vision of terrorism that was taken up by um, by Fox News? They didn't invent it. They took something very specific up, though. But I feel like they and they even took it up from like Reagan. Yes. I mean, maybe I'm maybe I have a biased perspective here. I grew up in the 80s. So to me, when I was growing up, terrorism was plane hijackings. Terrorism was like Libyans hijacking planes and terrorism was intifada. It was, you know, Palestinians, Mm -hmm. PLO. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the 
predominant image you're going to get, of course, is Muslims. Right off yeah. the bat, right? For Americans, like those two concepts are like so associated. And yeah, I, oh, it's like, it's going to be someone swarthy. Like that's right. going to be, it's going to be a non-white person um, and specifically yes. a Middle Eastern Muslim person. Yeah, because not all violence by non-white people is going to be terrorism. And I think maybe we can get into this in a few minutes. But, you know, I think about some of the groups that were funded and supported by the CIA in the 80s, like in Central America, they were swarthy, and they were committing violence, violent acts, and they very easily could be categorized as terrorists, but we called them freedom fighters, because they were fighting against regimes that we had an agenda against. But here's the thing. This is why I think that the 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 sort of Muslim thing has was taken up by the right wing, and some of it comes from the rhetoric of the Muslim terrorists themselves, which is that they're coming at this in a bigger way that we are against this decadent Western way of life. Mm-hmm. And I think that's taken up by white people as this proof of terrorism. They don't want to just kill specific people mm. they are after our american our way, way of, of life they hate our, our freedom culture they hate our freedoms absolutely yeah. yeah and i think that there's a way in which if you look at the history of um certain leaders in egypt or around the the conflict around the state of israel there was this idea that western progress was not progress mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. it had to be stopped and we're not going to play along with these bullshit ideas of Western industrialization as progress. And I think that that scaffolds a lot of what you're seeing from groups who promote acts of terror. And because of that, that's taken up as this proof. They hate our freedoms. They hate what we stand for. Yeah, I think that that especially took off after 9-11. That phrasing, that framing came about after 9-11, where it was like, why did this happen? And... What I recall from that time period and pretty much ever since is that if you really actually tried to talk about why that happened, if you wanted to get into the global politics, if you wanted to get into economics and talk about why this actually happened, you would get shut down because the yes. reason, the only acceptable reason that you're allowed to cite for this happening was that they hate our freedoms. That's right. And to a large extent, that's still true. If someone in the public discourse expresses some understanding of the terrorist point of view on that, well, here's here's where they're coming from. It's unacceptable. That's right. Supporting them. It's sympathizing with them. It's it's blaming America. And America has to be blameless when it comes to terrorism. America and Americans are blameless. So, so generally, I mean, it's not complicated. When Americans think of terrorism on the whole, it's usually dusky Muslim people. They hate American culture. They hate Western culture. They hate our freedoms. And they are using uh, tactics of attacking civilians, civilians in order to create fear, in order to inflict terror upon people because... The military power is asymmetrical, right? We have all the military power in the United States. They cannot compete with that. So as a response, they engage in these sort of what one might call guerrilla tactics 
if one were yes. viewing it from a different lens, but in this case, we'll call terrorist tactics. And again, we're not uh, excusing these tactics. No, no, just, of course not. We're trying to have a more complex discussion about it. Yeah, All we're right, getting friends? complicated. Yeah, we're getting complicated, my friend. So friends. get ready to get complicated. <laughs> So my question is, is it possible for us to complicate the definition of terrorism? Because I think when you examine what that word means and where it's applied, you quickly it quickly sort of falls apart and you see that it doesn't have a very clear, distinct definition that everyone agrees upon. And it's interesting, I was thinking this week about uh, Vera Zazulich, who was a Russian workers, sort of revolutionary. Um, she was known or she became famous because she perpetrated what could have been called the first terrorist act. Oh, really? It was in 1877. It was in St. Petersburg. A political prisoner didn't remove his cap in the presence of this of this Colonel, Colonel Trepov. And, uh, and so she publicly shot him. (gasps) Okay. And at the trial, the jury found her not guilty. This was a worldwide case. Oscar Wilde wrote his first play about her called Vera or the Nihilists. Oh, Um, there's a really brilliant playwright who I did a play of his that's uh, about Vera and Oscar. And there was a way in which when this event happened, it was shocking because she was a woman, uh, because she was a worker's hero. Uh, But it also then led to a lot of concern that this is what's going to happen in this time of violent workers' uprisings, in this time of Mm -hmm. the Bolshevik revolution. Um, She was uh, she was not she was a Menshevik. She wasn't a Bolshevik, but she was still part of the sort of commune. Those differences I'm reading. I'm starting this book about the gulags right now. So like those differences. I, my is reacting to be kind of rolling my eyes. <laughs> difference between Menshevik okay. and Bolshevik. I know there's a difference. Right. I know, I know you difference. know there's a difference. I'm just saying that we have to anyway. So <laughs> so as she was this revolutionary, and I think one of her, I think one thing that was very hard for her in her older life is that she was always remembered for this act and not for the rest of her work. And there is a way in which I think she regretted it in terms of this becoming uh, an acceptable public tool for workers to fight for their rights. Okay. That's really interesting to me. I mean, it brings up so many questions to me about political violence and when is political violence acceptable? You know, when is it a useful tool when is it morally acceptable? And these are pretty big questions that I don't know if we're really going to be able to tackle, but I do have a lot of thoughts about. But um, would you cons- you would consider Vera's action terrorism? In what I ways mean, does it meet a definition of terrorism? It's terrorism in that, I don't know that I would actually. I think that much more what I would look at in terms of other like moments in history, like American revolutionaries did acts that we would consider terrorism. Right. Uh, the Ir- Irgun, who's one of the more extreme branches of Israel's sort of revolutionary Zionist right. movement, could be considered terrorists because they did violent acts to strike fear 
into the communities that were following the rules that were oppressive. It's not even that they were striking fear into the people who were oppressing them. They were doing that too. Mm -hmm. But it's also to strike fear into the people who are following those rules. I think that's very much a Taliban technique. Like they know all these people aren't following them, but they're trying to say, if you follow these other rules, we are going to terrorize you. You are going to live in fear. So so typically... When the term terrorism is applied, it's being applied with disapproval. Yes. It's being applied to people we disagree with. But yes. if, we, if we look at the definition of it as being political violence that is intended to terrorize and through that terror incite some kind of behavioral change. Right. And it is usually being used by the less powerful side in some sort of asymmetrical conflict. Yes. In many cases it's pretty easy to see where we agree with the people who are doing exactly what I just said, but we don't call it terrorism. Like, I mean, like the American Revolution, or also going back to what I said a moment ago about the Contras, you know, the US government, now granted, it was illegally happening, but they were funneling money to the Contras in Nicaragua. And it wasn't just Nicaragua, there were plenty of rebel groups in Central America and Southeast Asia that were fighting regimes, usually communist socialist regimes that the United States found to be in our interest to overthrow. So we funded groups that by any dispassionate definition, you would have to call terrorist groups. They're the less powerful side in an asymmetrical conflict. They're using tactics to inflict, to create terror, to try to change the behavior of people. Like, this isn't the most original thought in the world to say, like, one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. But I do think it's worth exploring a little bit the connotations of the term terrorist and the way that the definition is can be a little bit flexible depending on whether you agree with the agenda of the terrorists. Well, and I think that's part of the reason that we initially came to this. Moira Donegan, who we adore, Mm. wrote this long Twitter thread saying misogyny is terrorism. Mm -hmm. And, And this is what made me think about doing this episode is that she sort of put event after event after event after event of recent violence against women. Mm. And at the same time that I was looking at that, after the last school shooting, my husband started fantasizing about homeschooling our kids to keep them. Right. But I was like, oh, this is what terrorism does. It's meant to change our behavior. If it was not for these shootings in schools, my husband would never be like, let's pull our kids out of school and homeschool them. And in terms of thinking about misogyny in that way, I'm like, it's trying to train people into being scared. And it made me think about the ways in which terrorism, yeah, one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. I think at the end of the day, terrorism is something that is deployed. It's deployed to create this bigger ripple effect. It's deployed. And there's a way in which one of the things it reminds me of, um, I remember when my best friend Nikki was visiting with her husband and we're driving in Hollywood and all of a sudden we get blocked by this cop car who like blocks our lane. And we watch as like 20 
LAPD converge upon this man and like knock him down. There are helicopters, there are 12 police cars there. And one of my friends said, well, yeah, LA is so big and dispersed that the way that the LAPD operates is not on like walking their beat and the sort of block to block thing. Uh They do these giant performances of power with helicopters, with multiple police cars. Like that's how LAPD manages crime. Well, that brings me to whether terrorism can be the actions of the state. Because there's no question. I know Maya's like, obviously it can be. She's making these facial expressions like, what the fuck are you posing this as a question? (laughs) But, but, But you have this situation, yeah, where 100% absolutely the police use terror. And I mean, black people know this. Police shootings of black people inflict terror and change people's behavior. How many times do you have to hear about black parents talking to their sons and daughters about how to behave? Um, And I want to also bring up just in terms of state sanctioned violence as terrorism, the performance of separating immigrant and migrant parents from their children by ICE agents is terrorism. A hundred percent. It's there to say, get, get, I mean, it's... Just just to put a point on what you're saying, that is the articulated logic behind it. If we do this, it will discourage people from coming because they'll be so afraid of having their children taken away. And at this point, fucking lost. Their children will be like... Bad timing inappropriate interruption of a serious thought because ICE is literally handing over children to human traffickers. No traffickers. Yeah. Yeah. And, and also in terms of this happening in American right now and why it is so additionally concerning, um, I've been looking at the history of some of the figures in the Mueller investigation. And there was this really interesting paper put out from the center of public integrity in the nineties called the torturer's lobby. And it's about lobbying firms that would be hired by these foreign dictators to make them appear acceptable to the American government. Um, like Ferdinand Marcos, like uh, the, the dictator from Angola. And when you read about the ways in which these strong men ran their countries, they deployed acts of terror. If you look at the way that Argentina, various like military dictatorships, they would disappear people. Disappearing people. This is, these are acts of terror meant to shape behavior. And so it is particularly concerning to see that used uh, as this kind of shameless tactic by the American government, specifically around illegal immigration. Yeah, it's horrifying. Uh, Another thing that you brought up in terms of historically, and this is something that's connected to the recent opening of the lynching monument in Montgomery, Alabama, is lynching as an act of terror. That is all it was. It was a state-sanctioned and excused performance of terror to terrorize Black people who were not staying in their lane. If there is a definition of terrorism, if there is an act that just like embodies what terrorism is, it has to be lynching. 
and and lynching was though sanctioned and allowed by the state in in many or most cases often perpetrated just by regular folks yes it is the definition of terrorism yes but it's rarely acknowledged as such in our culture generally right and i think that that's one thing that i think we want to then get to is this a moment to shift what the definition of terrorism is want to shift the definition of what terrorism is. Number one, how do we do that? And number two, should we do that? What can we accomplish that way? I feel like people are already going in that direction. Mm. And it's it's interesting because then when you think about people who you don't consider to be uh, terrorists because of what they, because you might agree with the outcome historically, like mm. American revolutionaries or, you know, things like that. I think one of the things you see a lot in movies, just to bring this back to culture, is this time when for the powerless who are believing in the right thing, mm -hmm. the only option is violence. That is such a huge part of every massive movie story, yeah. minority report for the, like, yeah. that is all there is to, well, like, well, really change things. That's a really interesting point and goes to a larger issue, which is in Hollywood movies, generally violence, violence is the only option for anyone, right? Right. Vi violence right. is always the only and best option in Hollywood. You'd be hard pressed to honestly identify a pacifist Hollywood film. But that's just <laughs> not a thing. <laughs> Even movies that are ostensibly anti-war um, right. still glorify the heroism of war. I just watched right. Dunkirk the other day and it, it's a fine film. Like actually it's a way better film than I expected it to be. Right. And, and it's World War II. So everyone gives a pass to World War II, right? You can't ever be critical of the fact that people use violence in World War II, I guess. Greatest generation. Right, right. Well, they were fighting the Nazis, but the movie right. doesn't take, does not take two seconds to think about, explore or address like why they're using violence. It's just straight up like, these people are heroes. What they did was heroic because they saved lives. And I don't know. It's just very typical that yes. there's this unquestioned heroism and the larger question of like, what if they didn't have to do that? Never really gets asked. Right. In terms of linking that to, to terrorism, though, mm -hmm. I do sort of appreciate your point. In Hollywood, when you sympathize with the aims, you want the use of violence. Violence yeah. is great. Yeah. You cheer it. Yeah, you cheer it. Of course, like this is like absolutely. I mean, if you think about it, the rebels in Star Wars are absolutely terrorists. Yes, <laughs> right. I mean, they blow up the Death Star, and I, I think I think Kevin Smith made this point in Clerks. So I'm not going to take credit for his point, but like you know, the Death Star had a lot of people on it that weren't just like Imperial soldiers, especially right. the second Death Star that was still under construction. There's like construction workers, there's contractors, you know. There's just cleaners. They're, yeah, you know. Yeah, exactly. There's people just trying to get by in an imperial world. Right. But, you know, those rebels. Right. They have a morally justified agenda. So we're going to agree with whatever violence they're going to commit. But back to what we were talking about. Right. In a way, I want to point out that our legal system kind of already recognizes racism as terrorism via hate crimes legislation. That's right. 
And I think a lot of people don't understand that because people like to think on the individual level. A hate crime is a crime that's motivated by racial bias or gender bias or uh, some other protected class bias. Some people object to hate, the hate crime legislation and feel like it's like thought crime. If you shoot someone, if you burn down their house, if you slap them in the face, whatever it may be that you do to them, that is the crime. And your right. reason for doing it isn't really the relevant part. And once you get into that, you're getting into the realm of penalizing people for their thoughts and opinions. But number one, the law already takes into account motivation, right? Motivation yes. determines yes. whether a murder is premeditated or not. And there's all kinds of different levels of penalty depending on what your motivation for the crime was. So fuck that. That's already a thing. But number two, what I think people who make that argument don't consider is that hate crimes are terrorism. When a hate crime is committed, the victim is not the only victim. Right. That's right. For a real world example, when Matthew Shepard was murdered, yes, that was a murder, like any other murder in a lot of ways, but also it terrorized every gay person in America. It yes. sent a message to gay people that they are not safe, that they have to hide who they are, that they have to be careful who they talk to, who they hit on, how they interact with people. Similarly, when any hate crime happens, when someone shoots an Indian man and calls him a terrorist, you are sending a message to members of that group, you are not safe. It's terrorism. Hate yes. crimes are terrorism. Yes. I mean, I also would bring up the example of, you said, you talked about misogyny as terrorism, and you would be hard-pressed to find a woman who hasn't changed her behavior in innumerable ways to try to avoid male violence, right? How many women have not changed the route they walk home from the subway to their apartment or from their car to their office or whatever it might be to try to avoid places that seem like they might be dangerous? How many women change how they react to a man who approaches them on the street or in a bar in order to try to avoid violence from him? Like, absolutely, behavior is being changed constantly. And so that's the way that they sort of square it is by having this category of a hate crime, because it's also there to say, you are going to change your behavior based on fear. Yes, exactly. And one of the things that that then makes us think of, and this is where I think a lot of this was first triggered, is you have all of these acts of mass violence, mostly shootings, mm -hmm. happening at this point with so much regularity mm -hmm. that it's hard to not think of them as some kind of a thing. Like right. it's hard like to like think a, of it like it's a pattern. There's this is a pattern. There's a thing happening. Yeah. It's almost all of these crimes are perpetrated by men. Yes. Uh, mostly white men. Almost all. And and the recent Toronto act of violence, he was saying this is part of the incel rebellion. And one seems to wonder what do people who do these shootings think that they're going to be achieving with this? What do, what do they think they're going to do to the victims and to a greater culture by pursuing these acts of violence? That's a great question. And I do think when it comes to mass shootings, you have a lot of individuals who have, who are emotionally disturbed in various yes. ways. 
So it can be difficult to pin a collective motive there. It can right. be difficult to right. say, well, that they don't have a, a an ideology. They don't have a political agenda per se. Right. Some of them do, absolutely. Right. But there's absolutely an intent to terrorize. Yes. That is why they're doing it. They want people to feel fear of them. Yes. And so it, it's hard to categorize it as terrorism because the lack of a coherent shared ideology or ideological agenda. But it's also hard not to categorize it as terrorism because the intent is clearly to terrorize. Yes. The the intent is to provoke terror that is somehow either going to change behavior or punish people for their behavior. Yes. And the shooter in in Texas, and when you're punishing somebody for their behavior, you're saying, hey, everybody else who acts like this, mm -hmm. don't act like this. And I think one of the things that's been very upsetting about things like the Texas shooting is that it leads politicians to say things like, because the shooter apparently had spent four months harassing a girl at school. Yes. And she finally, in order to make him stop, sort of publicly rejected him in this way. Mm -hmm. So there's been a lot of response of, well, he was bullied. This kid was bullied. And so he did this. He's the victim. He was embarrassed <sighs> by this girl. These yes. people are embarrassed by these. Like, don't embarrass people. Harvey Weinstein was just uh, arrested. And one of the lines of, I know we've talked about that he liked to use when he was sexually harassing people and he could tell they wanted to reject him is don't embarrass don't me. Don't embarrass me. Yeah. And I feel like, that is in some ways doing what they want people to do. Oh, yeah. Don't embarrass boys because they will fucking kill you. Yeah. That is terrorism right there. I think you see it if you listen to what women are saying about it. I think if you look at particularly like vocal feminists online, but generally speaking, women hear this message. Women absolutely know that they have to be careful. We have to be careful about how we reject men if we reject men because it's frightening. Oh, all right. That's our alarm telling us time is up. But we still have a bunch of things to talk about, so we, <laughs> we might not wrap up quite yet. Um, but yeah, like, there's just no question. Misogyny and misogynistic violence changes the way women behave. It, it changes how we go about the world and occupy space in the world. It changes how we dress, how, how we, I mean, even stuff that's not even violent. Like I was just reading recently about the accusations against Morgan Freeman. Just like, Fuck you, Morgan Freeman. I, I was rooting for you, but, um, <laughs> a lot of the women involved said they changed the way they dressed when they knew he'd be around because he would comment on their clothing because he would make sexual comments about them. So then this brings to me, which I think is part of what we're trying to like understand here. So I think is the base of this whole conversation is what can we do to adjust? Like, why isn't the idea of domestic terrorism enough of a thing? That's a what great is this question. leap that we're not able to make? We have these violent behaviors, in some cases leading to mass murders, that are clearly there to try to impact behavior in this way. The guy who 
in the Charlottesville protest who like ran down a bunch of people with his car this rage to kind of make a point. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that that's where a lot of these acts that we're trying to figure as terrorism, like these school shootings, these are people who through their act of violence are trying to make this bigger point. They know it's going to be in the media. Terrorism in a lot that's of ways was based point. in yeah. yeah, in these people who didn't who had these smaller kinds of political power doing something so huge and so violent that they could leverage the power of storytelling to be equated on the same level exactly. as these big powers that they're trying it's to It's about creating a platform for yourself. It's about That's being right. seen. Absolutely. Right. Well, the problem is that whenever the violence is in service of those who are already in power, it doesn't get registered as terrorism, which is why I believe that right-wing terrorism so often gets overlooked, that we have had this spate of right-wing violence. We have had alt-right and white nationalist violence that there have been all kinds of like stabbings and shootings and yes it's really if you look at the list of it awful yes and and every time i mean this is not a new sentiment i'm expressing here but when the when the act is committed by some white guy it, well he's a lone wolf he's emotionally disturbed he's crazy it becomes an individualistic act of right. of um disturbance emotional disturbance and not a collective problem even though so many of these people who have been radicalized online or whatever are clearly doing it for this larger attention. Yes. They are right. doing it as this performance. It's where violence and performance meet. Yes. That's, that's really true. This is why I really appreciate the refrain that NRA is a terrorist organization. I, I like the way that that is deliberately reframing what terrorism is, not only to be about like white guys committing mass violence, but also to be about the NRA enabling it. And, and the way that the NRA as an entity benefits from the terror that people feel. Your, your husband is there considering homeschooling. Parents are afraid to drop their kids off at school, they they have thoughts going through their minds like, is my kid going to come home? That's yeah. terror. Mm-hmm. And who's benefiting from it? I mean, yes, those committing the acts are not doing it on behalf of the NRA. They're doing it for their own fucked up reasons, you know, which may be white nationalist reasons. They may be misogynistic. They, they may, they could even be uh, Muslim terrorists like the San Bernardino right. shooter. Right, right, right. But it all benefits the NRA. It benefits the NRA and it benefits the gun makers who are making so much money off of the fear. Exactly. And it's shifting culture into thinking that this is a right, that this is necessary, that I cannot, I will not survive without this, that this is the world in which we live. Gun sales skyrocket after every mass shooting. I mean, I'm part of that is, of course, that after each mass shooting, gun owners or potential gun owners are afraid that gun laws are going to come into effect. They're going to 
limit their ability to purchase guns so they go out and buy them. But I think also an element of that that has to be considered is that people are afraid. Yes. And they believe incorrectly that guns will keep them safe. Yes. And that's a deliberate tactic from the NRA. So to say the NRA is a terrorist organization is very literally true. They they are, if not committing acts of terrorism, certainly creating the situation that enables them. They are setting the stage for these acts, which terrorize people. And then the terrorized people change their behavior in a way that benefits the NRA and the gun manufacturers that they represent. Like, how is that not oh, terrorism? God. Oh, it's so I bad. I know, I know. Believe me, I, I you know, I, I'm a former classroom teacher and I still do tutoring and other programs in schools. And it's hard to walk into a school without thinking, like, wh- where are the exits, where are the closets that I could hide I the actually, children in. I had to fail a student for not coming to class yeah. uh, in a way that I made really explicit. Like if you miss two classes, you fail. And I was afraid to send that email. I wow. was, I was a friend to say that email and I make my rules so clear. I'm really explicit. But I'm a why, hard ass. Like, why were you afraid to send it? You're afraid of what afraid, the student like, would do. Yeah, I was. Yeah. Like I still did it. Yeah. But I was kind of like, oh, well, if this is the hill I die on. <laughs> right, right, right. You can't know. I mean, and the chances yeah. are small, but that's the whole point of terrorism, right? Your chances of being caught in a school shooting are very, very, very small. Despite how common they are relative to other countries, it's still really unlikely. But that's not the point. The point right. is the way that people feel about it. The, the point is that... In a New York City elementary school, they have lockdown drills where right. the signal is given and the teachers have to direct all the students to hide in the closets. And when there mm-hmm. ceases to be room in the closets, to hide behind whatever corners they can. And they send people around through the halls to bang on the doors so that you can practice ignoring oh my that. God. Yeah, it's oh my fucking God. terrifying. It's but terrifying. Also, but and you I know it's a drill. What's interesting is that the student who I failed was a male student. Right, right, right. Would you have felt the same fear? If no, I would not have felt the same fear not. if it had been a of female student. Not. And so I feel like in that way, those acts have been effective where I was actually considering yeah. what's something I can do here because I don't want to potentially piss off a young man. Right. Well, they're they're dangerous, young men. They are. They they're are fucking they dangerous. Are. You don't know what websites they're on. <laughs> exactly. Right now, we're thinking about doing an episode about escapism in the time of Trump. You'll see we tweeted about it. I have a, a meme that you have to put on Instagram. Oh, um, great. I yeah, didn't see that. Go, yeah, go to my Instagram. Because I was actually reading, after reading Susan Faludi's memoir, I went back and read her book about terrorism, which I had never read. Mm-hmm. One of the things she talks about in terms of the way that people fantasized masculinity after 9-11 is she talks about everybody going back after 9-11 and watching John Wayne cowboy movies. Mm. as their way of dealing with the terror, as the way of dealing with this sort of panic. 
And it made me think, God, what are we doing to escape these days? What kinds of escapist entertainment are helping us through this political moment? And so that's a question that we have for all of you guys. Yeah. What is helping you get through? What is hitting that spot where when you read the news and you just can't take it anymore, <laughs> right. you're like, you know what? I'm just going to go and I'm watch. I'm going to go watch Say Yes to the Dress. That's, exactly. exactly. <laughs> that's what I need right now. What are those things that you need? Yeah. And not just watching, you know, reading, uh, video games you're playing, whatever it may be, whatever pop culture is, is helping you through this. What are you listening to? Music? Listening to. I never think about music. You can reach us to tell us all about this at saucepodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter. We are at saucepodcast. As Maya mentioned, we now have an Instagram, which has 28 followers. It's like double the followers we had last time we recorded. I feel like this is really good. Wow. Yeah. Well, really, but I also hear that and I'm like, I think we could do better, people. Oh, do you think? <laughs> you think we could do better than 28 followers? I, I think feel we like could. I, I feel like we could. So, hey, drunkometer. Oh, shit. We skipped the drunkometer. Uh, you go first. Well, I'm kind of at a five, uh, which I got there really quickly. I'm really yeah. shocked at how quickly I got there. Yeah, I'm similar. My drink was like surprisingly strong. Uh, I also didn't eat much today. I've been running around all day and then just sort of came home and threw a bunch of scotch down my throat. So I'm going with five. Well, you know what? I'm I'm I got drunk quicker than I thought, and now I'm about to go to to my therapist. So we'll see <gasps> how that goes. Therapist. I've never been drunk at my therapist's office. And, awesome. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Well, get in touch with us, saucepodcast at gmail.com, at saucepodcast for any of your social media needs. I am Maya Garantz, and you can find me at Maya Garantz anywhere. And I am Rebecca Cohen. You can find me as Gynostar pretty much anywhere. Just Google Gynostar. And we'll talk to you next week. All right. Bye-bye. Adios, amoebas.